I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Alright guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here of course with Steve. Good day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us, for the third time, Kristen Messenger from Bugs and Slugs. Welcome Chris. Uh, hey, hey, hey. Third time, how did that happen? Because <sighs> you've always got something to talk about. Yeah. Which is good. I think so. So for people that are new to the show, we try to keep it about wildlife. But really, we know that without habitat, we don't have any wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. This is it. Now, there's a habitat that you feel rather passionate about that you've come in today to address. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I do. I feel really passionate about it. So a, a lot of people know me as a bug lady, which is true. I am a bit of a bug lady. But... You know, I'm getting on a bit now, so I've got a bit of a history. And to begin with, when I first left uni, back in the late 80s, my first job was running the St Kilda Mangrove Trail. So I actually started out there as a guide when I was at uni, I was still at uni, and then I took on the management of the trail sort of in the early 90s. I put a proposal to the council. At the time, the trail was only open weekends and visitor numbers were really restricted such was the unique sort of habitat that the trail sort of traversed it's for those of you who don't know the St Kilda mangrove trails a 1.7 kilometer boardwalk well it was back then it's not quite that long anymore um so it's a 1.7 kilometer boardwalk that uh, runs a loop trail through the mangroves uh, fairly close to the township of St Kilda which is just north of Adelaide Um, And the mangrove trail is situated within pretty much the largest temperate stand of mangroves in the southern hemisphere. And they're a single species stand of mangroves. So temperate mangroves don't have the diversity of mangrove species that they do up north um, in the tropics. So down in the temperate zones, there's only really one mangrove species, and that's Avicinia mariner, um, which is the grey mangrove. Or sometimes it's called the white mangrove, but I always call it the the grey mangrove. And that particular veg association, people talk about mangroves, but really a mangrove ecosystem always has kind of three main zones of vegetation. So the, the mangroves themselves, which are um, predominantly intertidal, so they they grow on, if you can imagine a sandy beach, they grow on the beach part of the system. And then behind the mangroves on the higher ground is a salt marsh zone, which is predominantly or certainly dominated by samphires which are a a salt marsh plant and then in front of the mangroves in the slightly subtitle but sometimes sort of intertidal are the seagrasses and uh, the the seagrass they're often referred to as mudflats and they're often exposed on a really low tide the reason I want to talk about mangroves today, which you know I haven't done for a really long time, we've recently sort of uh, feels like we've got the band back together. I want to talk about mangroves today because in South Australia, uh, something pretty, pretty shifty is going on in the in the mangroves in in St Kilda, and uh, there's last count about seven kilometres of the mangroves on that side of the inlet, which is sort of the eastern side of Barker Inlet. Um, have died and they're just flat out dead and that's pretty distressing so a lot of the mangroves around the mangrove trail are dead and then that extends 
southward for about seven k's down along that that side of Barker Inlet and what's really remarkable about that is that Barker Inlet in itself has a pretty long history of uh, successive and increasing protections that have been imposed upon it uh, not I shouldn't say imposed but that have been afforded to it so um back in 1967 there was a a national park declared at the end of Torrens Island which is the Torrens Island uh, Conservation Park um and that was declared in in recognition that mangroves you know are, are pretty biodiverse places or biodiversity hotspots I know that's a word you like to use um and then in 19 or I reckon 73 from memory the the whole of Barker Inlet was declared an aquatic reserve so that kind of applied to everywhere south of the St Kilda breakwater Um, so that was a declared aquatic reserve and that was um, declared under the Fisheries Act of probably 1971 or something like that I think and then in 1980 I want to say five you should say five should I? Okay. If you I will, want to. I'll say five. I'll say <laughs> 1985, I think. I, I reckon that's about when the St Kilda Mangrove Trail was opened. Um, and that was opened within the aquatic reserve. So, um, but that was, that, that was actually proposed by some students at what was then the Salisbury CAE. So that they ran a parks and wildlife course there. And... Um, some students did that as a, a project in their final year and proposed this boardwalk be built to to really allow people access into the mangroves where, you know, it's very hard to get into mangroves because the the mud is pretty deep in there and the, the trees themselves grow in really thick, fairly oxygenless mud. So it's and it's an ecosystem that inundates like once or twice a day, isn't it? Yeah, about twice a day. So in in South Australia, our tidal regime sort of roughly two two high tides and two low tides every 24 hours and 26 minutes. Whoa. I don't know where the 26 minutes comes in, but there you go. Um, And so we also experience a phenomena which is is pretty rare in the world. There's only a couple of other places in the world, somewhere maybe like the Gulf of Mexico and somewhere in Japan, there's a little bay in Japan I reckon as well, that experience a dodge tide and the Gulf of St Vincent is one of three places in the world that that I'm aware of that um, also experience a dodge tide and what that means is that the tides within the Gulf of St Vincent because you've got uh, the Gulf and then at the mouth of the Gulf you've sort of got Kangaroo Island which is a bit like a the best way to describe it is it's like a cork in a bottle And so the tides, in order to get into the Gulf, have to go around Kangaroo Island. And there's a bit of a lag time between the tide on the outside of the island and the tide in the Gulf. And once every two weeks, roughly, uh, when the moon is... trying to think. uh, So it's not a full moon, it's not a new moon. It's usually on the quarter moon you get a dodge tide. So there's two quarter moons every tide cycle. So on that quarter moon, the tides are not really, you know, they don't have a lot of oomph behind them. There's not a big difference between high tide and low tide on the quarter moon. So we'd we'd call that a neap tide. And in South Australia, 
when the when there's a neap tide often what will coincide with a neap tide is a dodge tide and that's where there's a bit of a lag between the tide coming around the island and the outgoing tide or the in, incoming tide catches up with the outgoing tide and one cancels the other one out so you have an extended period of usually an extended period of low tide but very occasionally you can have a high dodge where you'll have an extended period of sort of high tide but it's a pretty nothing high tide it's not the opposite of a neap tide of course is a spring tide and a spring tide occurs not in spring people think a spring tide means it's happening in spring but if you think about a spring tide being um, the tide springing up that's how I think of it and so every every time there's a full moon or a new moon that's when the the gravitational force that's acting between the earth and the moon and the sun is at its greatest. So if you can imagine stretching a rubber band, right, the further you stretch out that rubber band, when you let it go, the further it springs back together, right? And it springs right back together. But if you just pull it out a little bit and you let it go, it just sort of flops, right? So that's what happens with the tide. So when there's a spring tide, it's like that rubber band's being stretched out and you get a really high, high tide. And you get a really low, low tide. So that's the, you know, the, the opposite of that effect is that the, the t- high tide is really high during the spring tide, but the low tide is generally really low as well. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's hard to explain that without pictures. <clears throat> so, so that's the spring tide. And the opposite of that is the neap tide where the high tide is reasonably low and the low tide is reasonably high. And there's not much difference between high tide and low tide. And that's why during that period, um, you can get these dodge tides. Where, but, but usually the places that have them all have that same geographical configuration where there's a gulf and an island at the mouth of that gulf that interferes with the, the tides between what's happening in the gulf and what's happening outside of the gulf. Okay, so just going back, these mangroves that we Sorry. have here in, no that's good these mangroves we have here in Adelaide did yeah. you say that's the the biggest the, yeah so the the mangroves of Barker Inlet represent roughly 14% of the mangroves in South Australia and they're last time i checked they're the the largest stand of of temperate mangroves uh, certainly in the southern hemisphere and probably like the second largest stand of temperate mangroves maybe in the world now, I've been to the boardwalk, I've been there a couple of times, and it's fantastic because, like you said, it allows people to get right in there, you know, you're elevated out of the mud, yep. and you can see how extensive they are, you know, and it's just so amazing, especially for people that have been to Adelaide, like the plains are pretty much all cleared, so just houses and concrete and, yeah. you know, parks yeah. and, you know, a little bit of stuff on the coast, that's it, but the mangroves are quite amazing, and especially now you can get in there with the boardwalks, and now you, did you say seven and a half k's of this are now... Um, dead, yep. Dead. I yep. read 10 hectares of St Kilda is now dead. Yeah. Which I... is so much. That's 10 hectares. It's huge. Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong, that's yeah. bad and, and it's sort of need sorting out before it gets any worse. But when you look at countries like Thailand has lost 84% of its mangroves. Well, what I think is important to understand about Barker Inlet, right, is that it's it's been subject to an awful lot of clearance and change already. Um, so so I think it's fair to say that the mangroves that are there are relatively remnant mangroves. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing for people because back in my day, and, I, you know, I'm going back 30 years uh, when I 
started at St Kilda, maybe more than that. I don't want to make the numbers. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't want to do the numbers. But um, so I'm going back to the late 80s. And back then, I think it was really easy for people to see the salt fields behind the mangroves. And to be fair, they've been there since, you know, the early 1900s. And they are built in places on mangroves. And in uh, the rest of the salt field is built on old samphire or salt marsh. And it's really easy to look at that and sort of think, you know, that that the mangroves and the salt fields would be at odds with each other. But certainly in my day, we, we had a, we shared a really close relationship with the salt fields. And um, people like Perry Coleman, who was the ecologist of the salt fields back then, when they were run by ICI and then later Penrice, and then I think they chopped and changed backwards and forwards a bit. So they employed a full-time ecologist, or actually several full-time ecologists out there, and their job was to keep the salt field running because the salt field is an ecosystem. So it's it's really hard for people to get their heads around how salt field works. But um, So right up at uh, Port Gawler, which is where the salt fields start, the ponds up there, which is where they pump in the seawater, and the, the pond is essentially it's a series of gravitationally fed shallow pools right but the first few pools are just seawater so they're not evaporating the water up there is not really evaporating it's just seawater and I've actually had the pleasure back in the day um again with um Perry Coleman whose name will crop up a bit I think in the in this whole I'll just interject our listeners may remember the episode we did with her daughter, Faith Common, the estuarinecologist, talking about yeah, right, estuarinecology. But that's anyway. right, yeah. So Faith would have only been, oh, she would have been probably eleven or twelve, I think, back, back on this particular occasion, and um, we went snorkeling in in the salt field up at Port Gawler, um, and it's like snorkeling through a giant marine aquarium so there's seagrass growing on the bottom of it there's all kinds of like pipe fish and there's probably weedy sea dragons and things like that in there i didn't see any but we did see pipe fish um all kinds of sponges and anemones and little fish or like it's just this insane aquarium that you can i mean you, you need a key to get in there but i mean back in our day we I had a key. Hmm. I had my own key to the salt fields and we could go in there and go bird watching and so could members of um, the bird study group and, yeah, we we all had keys that we could let ourselves in and, you know, you had to sign in and sign out and follow the rules and stuff. But, um, but we always had this fantastic relationship with the salt fields because we recognised that they were an important buffer between the mangroves and the salt marsh and the urban development on the other side and they recognized that the mangroves and the marine environment on the other side of them were kind of responsible for their livelihood so there was never any sort of acrimony between us we were always on very good terms and on in regular contact with each other so that kind of makes what's happening now seem even harder to to get your head around you know for me it's to to imagine that we would fast forward to a time now where there's this kind of conflict between the operators of the salt field um who are i I should point out are new operators and um 
and the environment, we, we were always on the same team before, you know. So I've, I find that really, really challenging to sort of try and imagine how that could have come about. And certainly there's people better better informed than I am to talk about this, but about one of, well, about, certainly about the, the chemistry of the mangrove mud, which is ultimately what's caused this problem, is that underlying Barker Inlet, because you've got a whole heap of really old mangrove soils, and mangrove soils are generally acid sulfate soils. Now, what that means is that they're saturated with water, they're really low in oxygen and, you know, to some extent there's almost no oxygen in them. And people would be familiar, wouldn't matter where you were in the world, if you go into mangroves and you tread in the mud, you will release hydrogen sulphide or rotten egg gas. It's, you know, it stinks like rotten eggs, like dirty old farts, right? Not um, mine. Not yours. <laughs> so, so that's a process of reduction that's going on in the in the mangrove soils, where sulphur is reduced into hydrogen sulphide. Um, the other thing that happens in mangrove soils is a process of oxidation, which is where the hydrogen sulphide is then oxidised, and you get all different kinds of bacteria that, um, you know, literally stuff sulphur into their cell walls they precipitate sulfur almost and it and they're kind of stuffed into their cell walls so if you go into mangroves you see lots of different sort of um sulfur compounds and iron compounds that have um, formed through oxidation so you get a lot of iron hydroxide which looks a little bit like oil on the surface of mangrove like um, an iridescent mud. Yeah, yeah it's really like rainbow and pretty and but if you stick your finger into it it doesn't disperse like oil does, it cracks, it breaks into pieces, which is the easiest way to tell that it's iron hydroxide and not, not an oil spill. We used to always get people coming back from their walks on the mangrove trail saying, oh, I think there's been an oil spill. You know, but if you stick your finger in it, it cracks into pieces because it's a film of iron hydroxide. And then you get a lot of bacteria like theovalum, which is a, um, a sulfur bacteria that you know that that um, can appear sort of like white feathers in the water or sometimes like pink feathers in the water um, and that's just bacteria that has has got sulfur stuffed in its cell walls like elemental sulfur stuffed in its cell walls and so acid sulfate soils are, are pretty harmless if they're just left alone right but if they're dug up or drained or they come into contact with oxygen, then the pyrite in the soils, which is uh, like iron sulfide minerals, right, which which we know as pyrite, um, so the, the pyrite reacts with oxygen and it oxidises. And what you then get is sulfuric acid. And essentially that's what's killed the mangrove. So as we understand it, and if you speak to Perry, she'll explain this in, in real detail um, so essentially what's happened is the salt fields have been allowed to dry out the gypsum clay lining that lines the salt fields is cracked which is what you would expect if if you've been left to dry out for seven years having been wet for a hundred right and the, the lining is cracked and then when the salt field's been re-wet the hypersaline brine has then leached through the cracks and it's come into contact with the really old acid sulfate soils underneath the salt field that's then caused oxidation um, with the pyrite 
in those soils and that's then formed sulfuric acid and that sulfuric acid as well as the really super super salty brine like way saltier than mangroves would normally experience um, that has then leached through the uh, the ground into the mangroves adjacent to the salt field so that's what you know in a in a nutshell taking all the fancy sort of chemistry out of it that's what we think has has happened but I guess from my point of view having spent 10 years of my life sort of educating people about that particular ecosystem and and having been a part of a really long line of of people mostly students um, so the mangrove trail was a bit of a training ground for a whole heap of people I won't go dropping any names but there are a lot of people in the department in fairly high places these days Ambra. <laughs> well actually now that you mention it he he didn't visit, oh here we go um but i will say that his film crew did visit um the saint kilda mangrove trail on one occasion uh, because it was shortlisted for a, a documentary that he was making about mangroves unfortunately they chose a different location they didn't choose our location but um but they did they did visit and check it out David Bellamy also visited the St Kilda Mangrove Trail and he, at the time, called it one of the best environmental education facilities that he'd seen anywhere in the world. And that was pretty, you know, that was a, that was a big highlight for me. I, I really loved meeting him and I loved spending time with him. Okay. And, um, it's good ears. Have you heard of him? Yeah. yeah. It's funny because I, I actually wrote him a letter and uh, then he did this talk out at the Nord Concert Hall and... He read out my letter. It was you know this very heartfelt, passionate letter, and um, and it was great. He said really great things, <laughs> but no one Wait, could understand you did. You, him. You wrote it. Yeah. No, no one could understand him. So I thought, damn. Um, but no, he 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 loved the mangrove trail, and he um, you know he was a great advocate for for the place and what was going on out there. But. Um, I guess what I really want to focus on is why mangroves matter because it seems to me that there's a bit of confusion out there about whether we can just lose 10 hectares of mangroves and not worry about it. Well, a lot of people like, like even the ABC thing I spoke about earlier was sort of really going down the bird trail of, of the birds being there. It's important for the birds and that, but it's important for way more than just the birds. It's important for the birds, absolutely. But Yeah, look, I guess my... <laughs> What I've seen over the over the years is um, a, a fair decline in bird numbers, and I think that's largely, you know, I mentioned before that we always had such a good relationship with the salt fields, and I think one of the secrets of Barker Inlet is that the birds, for the for a big part, were there because of the salt fields, not in spite of them, because the salt fields were filled with food. You know, they're filled with brine shrimp. And for a lot of those migratory waders, that's what they come there for. So the habitat certainly is what they're looking for, but the numbers that that area could support um, were, were certainly bolstered by the fact that the salt fields provided a, an enormous artificial food supply that you know, wouldn't have been there if it had just been houses on that supratidal zone. And I think what I've seen anecdotally is a, is a decline in bird numbers certainly over the last 30 years since since I since the mangrove trail had its heyday really but nonetheless there's still something like 27,000 birds that you know that actually rely on the 
Barker Inlet and and not just Barker Inlet but further north of Barker Inlet so in uh, I can't remember what year it was maybe 2015 I think the Adelaide International Bird Sanctuary was declared a national park and prior to that in 2005 I think you can fact check me later I'm just I look like I'm just making up these numbers doesn't it (laughs) so I don't even know where these numbers are coming from but I just sort of remember them numbers are my friend but yeah I think 2005 the dolphin sanctuary was declared and um both of those sanctuaries I guess rely on the fact that birds and dolphins are fairly iconic species but I suppose for me the bug lady in me can't can't help but point out that the strength of the bird numbers and the strength of the dolphin numbers really relies very heavily on the invertebrates in that ecosystem and so if we can talk for a minute about what mangroves do you know why mangroves matter because they they perform a really important role and for people who aren't familiar with Barker Inlet if you can imagine the metropolitan coastline of Adelaide if you can imagine a long-handled net can you imagine can. that the shape yep. of a long-handled net, right, with a long stick and then the net uh, sitting at the top of that stick? I already said I could imagine. Oh, it, you but can. You, you explain. Okay, no, you <laughs> okay sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll lady explain that to you. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so if you can imagine that, right, the Adelaide metropolitan coastline is the handle of the net. And so sediment comes along the coastline in a northerly direction, Right, so you've got Hallett Cove in the south and that's right at the bottom of the handle. That's the plastic bit on the end of the handle and that's a very rocky coastline, a high-energy coastline. The slope of the beach is quite dramatic um, and there's not a lot of sand at that end of the the, the, the system. It's it's a lot of rocks. Mine didn't have a plastic handle, so I'm having to reimagine now. Okay. But, yeah, go on, you're all right. I'm there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and then the, 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 a, a process called longshore drift brings sediment in a northerly direction along the handle of the net, right? And the sediment falls out of the water. The bigger the particles of sediment, the sooner they fall out of the water. So very big particles like rocks will fall out around Merino, for example, where uh, you get a rocky sort of coastline. You get a lot of rocks because only rocks can fall out of a high energy sort of coast where the water's moving a lot and there's big waves and stuff so the rocks can settle but the sand keeps going carried in suspension along the handle of the net right Um, by the time you get up to say semaphore and largs um, you're getting much finer particles of sand but still sand falling out of the water column right and the beach is getting slightly less slopey like the slope up there is more like sort of you know I want to say it's probably maybe one on 30 or something like that. So for every 30 metres you go in, you go up about a metre. It might be a bit more than that, might be one on 50. By the time you go around the end of the handle and into the actual net, right? Barker Inlet, can you imagine, is the net. Mm -hmm. So by the time you go around the end into the net, what happens there... The slope there is about one on 1,000, so it's really almost no slope. Um, So that's why you get such a big tidal range. So the beach, for example, is much wider. It's a few kilometres wide rather than, you know, a very narrow strip of sand. It's a very wide strip of mud, mud flat. Um, 
and the wave action as it comes into the inlet, the, the wave which might be say 100 metres wide, disperses around the entire inlet. Does that make sense? Yep. So that the wave is stretched, which reduces the energy in that wave even further. And it means that only the very finest particles of sediment, like the really fine mud, stay suspended. And then as they uh, come in through the mangroves, the roots of the mangroves, which as you know, mangroves have a an aerial root system, and the grey mangroves roots stick up out of the ground like dead man's fingers, right, sticking up out of the ground. And um, they slow the water down even further, and so even the finest particles that are suspended in that water drop out of the out of suspension and sediment around you know that they trap the sediment around the roots because it allows it to slow enough that's right yeah that to happen yeah and seagrasses are also play an important role in that so the the seagrass in barker inlet um it's changed a little bit because seagrasses have got their own struggles um but it used to be predominantly heterozostera um, there's a bit of Posidonia and a bit of Zostra out there as well. Um, and those seagrasses, they're not um, seaweed. People call them seaweed, but seaweed technically are algaes that don't have a root system. Seagrasses are flowering plants. So they're an angiosperm. They have a root system. And they, um, you know, what you see, the seagrasses are the leaves. And then the leaves of the seagrass, in the same way that if you're on a reef, you get epiphytic growth, you know, growing stuck to rocks and stuff like that. Um, so in a seagrass environment, the seagrasses become the substrate that other things grow stuck to. So back in my day, the real issue for Barker Inlet was the fact that there was a lot of nutrient in the water. And that nutrient was caused by the fact that the Bolivar Sewage Treatment Works used to discharge effluent. So treated, but treated only to a sort of a secondary level. Um, and that was discharged just north of uh, St Kilda via a creek. We used to call it Shit Creek. Um, Up Shit Creek. I used to, I, I've always wanted to write a book <laughs> called Up Shit Creek um, and, yeah, and base it on that, that part of town. So Shit Creek used to run through the salt fields and discharge, strangely, you know, you imagine it discharging out under the water in some mysterious pipeline but it just discharged on the landward side of the mangroves <laughs> in this great big kind of <laughs> dump of you know green sludge dump of dump yeah pretty 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 <laughs> confronting you wouldn't have seen that though unless you had a key to the salt fields where you used to go swimming no we used to go swimming <laughs> much further north but, but there were things in there like feral deer and you know native water rats and all kinds of birds. I mean, the bird life was just insane. That's that's the main draw card of the salt fields for people like me was bird watching. And there's a number of in, endangered species of birds out there too, samphire thornbills and some of the migratory waders that, you know, fly from Siberia to South Australia every year. Um, so, yeah, and via Japan and all, all sorts of exotic places, you know, green shanks and sharp-tailed sandpipers and all kinds of um, migratory birds that turn up there. Um, yeah, so some of those... Um, some of the issues from back in my day were really focused on the nutrient levels in the inlet, which were really high, lots of nitrogen, lots of phosphates being discharged. Now, that, that problem was resolved at great expense to the Australian... <laughs> Um, South Australian taxpayers, um, 
So that problem was resolved when the Bolivar um, Treatment Works uh, worked on a program to divert a lot of that effluent to Virginia, where it's now sold off to irrigate market gardens at Virginia, right? And that that's had a that's just had an enormous positive impact on the inlet, which kind of beggars belief that the government, having spent that kind of money to resolve some of those issues in the inlet, wouldn't be responding now with vigor and mm. you know and um, passion about the fact that. Uh, this is this has happened. I mean, this is an environmental um, disaster of epic proportions. It seems it worldwide, like not just oh, yeah, St Kilda, it, but worldwide. It seems on. like a, a, a bad thing that's happening. Yeah, and I, I, I'm sort of a little bit surprised that internationally, you know, that the international community. I guess that's why I wanted to come on the podcast and talk about it because the podcast has a um i don't know if you're aware of this but it has a bit of an international audience a little bit yeah yeah <clears throat> and um and I, I i really wanted people to get behind it there's actually a petition on change.org it's called save st kilda mangrove so if people um want to sign the petition you need to go to change.org and uh, type in save St Kilda Mangrove. So it's save ST for Saint uh, Kilda K-I-L-D-A Mangroves and sign the petition. And there's also a Facebook page you can follow, which is again save St Kilda Mangroves. Um, because the more people that are putting pressure on the government to respond, you know, I guess that's I guess that's what they're paid to respond to us when we make enough noise. So I, I think we, we need to make Absolutely, but people are not making a noise because people don't really understand that mangroves do just like all the birds on that side. Mangroves do just as much good for us as what a rainforest does, even more so. Absolutely, with um, the carbon, carbon. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, it does more than that, so we we can't afford to lose that. As well as rainforest, we need to save everything. But mangroves are just as important. We need to look at it. And I guess the, the the other thing for me is that in South Australia, you know, again, I'm going back to sort of the mid-90s. There was a, a report produced about the uniqueness of the South Australian marine fauna and flora. So, you know, we talk a lot about the Great Barrier Reef and places like that. But in South Australia, and just let this sink in for a minute because it's, it's quite significant, I think, in South Australia, the percentage of endemic species in our seagrasses and um, some of our offshore uh, places and our mangroves, right, the percentage of endemic species is something like 98%. Now, compared to the Great Barrier Reef, where it's beautiful and it's tropical and it's you know fabulous and showy and flashy and it's in your face, but... N- 90% of the species on the Great Barrier Reef can be found in any tropical reef anywhere in the world, right? I'm making up that number, 90%, but it's a high percentage. <laughs> You've made up a lot <laughs> so, of numbers No, today. no, I'm not making up the 98% <laughs> no, no. Can of you just put, species. Um, in your list <laughs> question of things mark, question to do, mark. take out all numbers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fact check. Numbers. Settle down, settle down. Um, but no, but it's true. So, so about roughly 98% of our species of... The temperate marine species are endemic. They, you don't find them anywhere else. We are the largest southern coastline in the world too. So are probably, we? Yeah. Well, I didn't yeah. know that. See, I'm learning things from you, Adrian, which is good. Wow. I know. I'm going to keep that in there. Should we finish Definitely. there? Yeah. Keep that in there. Um, 
But the mangroves don't just sequester carbon. There's a whole heap of things mangroves do. So, you know, we're talking about imagining a net, you know, long-handled net, right? So the net part, which is where the mangroves are, which is Barker Inlet, they are like the lungs of the coast. And I know when people think of the coast, you know, we have a very human perspective on the coast don't we so we think we think of the beach but we think of different beaches don't we We think like our brighton beach or semaphore beach or largs beach and we think of them as being separate places because we drive down a different road Mm. to get to that beach and we walk down a different path and there's a different jetty and blah 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 but there's only one beach right australia's got one beach cliffs and beaches the, the coast well, whether it's a cliff, whether it's a sandy beach, whether it's a mangrove, but it's all one beach. There's no, and if if you think of, you know, if the land is like a a body, right? If the land is a a living thing, and I I believe it is, like it's a, a living organism, then what is the coast? The coast is like the skin, you know. The coast is the the coast is the thing that keeps the stuff you want out out and the stuff you want in in and it's it's the bit that protects you and shields you and guards you and keeps you together and even though we like to sort of carve it up and mess with it there's really only one coast and whatever you whatever you do to one part of the coast will impact on every other part of the coast because there's only one coast every landmass only has one beach and it's this great big continuing thing that wraps its way around the land like a great big giant hug, you know, and keeps everything safe. And the mangroves are the, the lungs of that coast, you know. They're the part of the coast that collect all the grit and the grime and the slime and the fish poo and they hold it there and they keep it safe and they stop it from impacting on the other parts of the the coast and they stop it from floating around in the water and making a great big mess and so so they clean up that water before it goes out to sea they'll they'll hold a lot of the oh yeah they they're keeping all that sediment a filter yeah they're like a filter so they're Mm. filtering that sediment and they're holding it holding it in one spot and then you end up with all these amazing repercussions from that. So because you've got all this food in there, you know, you've got all these ti- this tiny particulate matter that other things can eat. So there are parts of Barker Inlet where if you can get in a kayak, and there, there is actually a, a company that do kayak tours, I think. I, know I take called, my kayaks up to um, Garden Island I'm sure yeah. if you just Google, you know, Beautiful. kayaking Garden yeah. Island, the, mm. the name of that company will come up. They're down there all the time when I'm I'm down there. And well, um, if anyone's listening, they can borrow my kayaks. <laughs> they can't, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there are spots in Barker Inlet where if you kayak around and you get into one of the big big beautiful tidal creeks and they're like um they're not people imagine them to be muddy you know can, no. I, can I say shitholes <laughs> but I, they're not they're like beautiful crystal beautiful. clear yeah and, and if you stop yeah it's mm. just unreal you look have down. you ever stopped and looked down and go, you can get like if you get a piece of perspex that's nice and clear and put that on the water so that you stop all the wave action right so you can see like mm. through the water and just find a spot where it's nice and shallow and you think you're looking down on rocks but if you look really closely there is like a carpet of sea anemones 
like a carpet of mm. them. And all of those sea anemones are filtering the water. And then if you actually get out and go for a snorkel around, you really got to – I don't recommend you do that unless you really understand the tides because it's a big tidal range. It's a mm. three-metre tidal range out there, so you don't want to find yourself swimming against a, an outgoing tide, um, you know, while your kayak's going. <laughs> it's bad if you get anywhere near the mouth and the tide's yeah. going out and you're trying to get back. That's right. It's yeah, it's, it gets a bit tricky. Yeah, and there are some big – I've seen some big sharks out there too, bronze whalers in particular – but yeah, if you do go for a snorkel around there, what you'll find is that all these things that just will sort of look like bunches of brown and orange kind of goo um, are actually sponges and um, sea squirts and all of these filter feeding organisms that are feeding on all of that sediment that's coming in. Because some of that sediment is just mud, but some of it's you know organic material that's that's quite edible. And so all of those things are then feeding this food web and there's also a lot of, you know, like mangrove leaves falling into the water and those mangrove leaves are also producing organic material that other things can eat. And, and um, you know, if you think about things like the little orange clawed burrowing mud crabs, the little helicrapsid crabs, which are, I just love them. Um, and they're just everywhere. So when the tide goes out, they're just, you know, all over the mud surface. When the tide comes in, they're just running around all, all um, under the water. And then you've got all the little pebble crabs that, you know, have these great big long skinny arms and they're sort of, you know, bonking along under the water in the tidal creeks. And, and then you've got a whole range of shellfish and mussels and cockles and, you know, all kinds of um, in- incredible sort of... Um, diversity in those in those tidal creeks that people just wouldn't because it's so hard to get into mangroves and that's one thing that the boardwalk really allowed people to to see was some of that amazing marine life that occurs in mangroves you know because you you just don't see it normally did the Ghana people utilize the mangroves as a food source well look I think one of the reasons the international bird sanctuary um you know, was declared was was in recognition of the fact that um, that mangroves are so important to indigenous people. I don't know who you'd speak to about that. Obviously, I'm not a Ghana person, so what? Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> Go figure. Um, but it's it's one of the things we did when when I was running the trail was we partnered with Townde Aboriginal College, and. Um, they ran their tourism training for all their tour guides through the mangrove trail and they ran uh, Ghana cultural tours in the mangroves um, because obviously, and there's there's some stuff that's, you know, quite sensitive, like there are places on Torrens Island that are really significant cultural sites. There are places in, um, in and around Port Adelaide that are really significant cultural sites and the the dreaming for Barker Inlet is the black swan dreaming which I could show you photos of low tide in Barker Inlet with a hundred thousand black swans out on the mud mud flats on the sea grasses and stuff so that's that's not a surprise to me that that was so so significant but obviously the mangroves all around Australia have a history of fish traps and you know, either permanent or semi-permanent fish traps that have been built. Now, unfortunately for Barker Inlet, because it's so close to an urban area and so close to a major port, some of that historical evidence is, is no longer no longer there. So we we have to assume, and I think if you spoke to 
Ghana people, they would they would verify that through their own verbal histories, which, you know, obviously they're so good at maintaining those verbal histories, they would be able to verify the, the significance of Barker Inlet for, for fishing. I mean, for a lot of Ghana people, as I understand it, they spent most of the summer months in and around the Port Adelaide area. And that, that I think the name for it would make a great podcast to speak to someone. Um, I remember speaking to Uncle Lewis O'Brien a long time ago now. He's, he's still around, though, about the significance of Barker Inlet. There's a name that means something like, you know, place where, place where the waters sleep or something like that, which makes perfect sense but there's things that I'm aware of wouldn't be spoken about with me because I'm a woman and there are certain parts of Barker Inlet that are really significant to Ghana men as I understand it and also to the Jilbrookie dreaming story and then there are other elements of Barker Inlet that are very significant to women. Why else are mangroves important? Well, so apart from protecting and stabilising the coastline, um, the other significant role of mangroves, um, economically, apart from the fact that you know there's a lot of tourism money that centres around the mangroves, the fishery. So if you think about the fishery, now I, I don't, I don't know what the current figures on the fishery are, but 30 years ago, the estimate on the value of Barker Inlet as a nursery was something like $30 million a year. And presumably the price of fish has gone up well and truly since then. So, but if you if you think about fish nurseries, they rate them, you know, in the same way you rate movies, I guess like one star, two stars, three stars, four stars. And so Barker Inlet gets like five stars for whiting, five stars for mullet, five stars for blue crabs, um, prawns also, brim. part of prawn life brim cycle. would have to be in Involves Barker Inlet, brim, yep. Um, there's photos, so you'd be hard-pressed to, to find one now, but there's photos back in the day, um, people would go to St Kilda to catch mulloway. And I'm talking like massive, like metre and a half mulloway. And there's some photos in the St Kilda Hall. Well, they used to be, I don't know if they're still there, but of, you know, hundreds of mulloway lined up on these big fish racks from people just catching mulloway in the mouth of tidal creeks and stuff like that. I don't think you catch one that big out there now, but... And my grandma, interestingly, is uh, her family had a fish and chip shop down in somewhere in Bowden, and um, she used to go with her brother in the horse and cart out to St Kilda, which was, you know, a well and truly a day trip in a horse and cart, and they'd get up, you know, two nights before they had to be there and get in the horse and cart and go out to St Kilda to catch blue crabs, and this is. She'd be well over 100 if she was still alive, old Doris Mary. Um, and they used to get out in the horse and cart and go to St Kilda and catch blue crabs and wrap them up in a hessian sack and get back in the horse and cart and bring them back to the fish and chip shop, which is just... And people still go out there crabbing. The crabs out there are pretty phenomenal. So if you just think about the value of the commercial fishery and the recreational fishery, you know, that has a massive economic value on the on the state yeah because that's where they're protected they're breeding and then when they go out to sea i guess that's when they get caught 
Yeah, so the, the fishery out there, the, the fishery um, services the whole of the Gulf of St. Vincent, not just, you know, not just Port Adelaide. I'm not just talking about people fishing off the jetty. Mm. I'm talking about commercial yeah. prawn trawlers and commercial, you know, fishing vessels that go out and and catch fish. And that's why I think I'd, um, I think we spoke earlier about, you know, doing surveys with fisheries in Barker Inlet. And that's why we did those surveys all the time was to you know, estimate the, the future of the fishery uh, based on... So what we were looking at was um, fingerlings, you know, tiny little juvenile fish. Is that why they're called fish fingers? Yeah, that's <laughs> what they made out of. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, so I, I suppose what I really want people to understand is if we lose mangroves, whether we lose 10 hectares, and, and that, that's the thing, I guess, is that this dieback has not abated yet like it's it's um still progressing seems to have slowed a little bit but um it is still progressing and you know i think in the first instance we really need to put some pressure on not just the government but you know the rest of the community to get on board with with what's happening out there and understand that um this is a protected area these mangroves are a protected species this is a protected area that, you know, what, what sort of makes a mockery of all those protections if we don't, if we don't actually do something, you know. And I don't look. I'm not a terribly political person. What I do know is that I think it's reasonable to say lots of the bad stuff that happens happens because of governments, but lots of the good stuff that happens happens because of governments. And I think the government has an opportunity, and and I'm I'm also willing to accept that. They're probably also reeling from what's happened. I want to believe that. I can't. I can't believe that they don't care. I, I, I just can't believe that they don't care. There's, you know, 50 years of commitment to Barker Inlet to the protection of Barker Inlet that's quietly going down the tube. Um, so someone has to be accountable for that. Somebody has to. Somebody has to care about that. And you know, I have to assume that if somebody is in government, if you've got the top job, Stephen Marshall, for example, I have to assume that you're not an idiot. And and maybe you've got your detractors and maybe you've got your supporters, but I don't care so much one way or the other for politics. I just want to see people being effective and and making effective, you know, calls of judgment. And at the moment I can't see anybody I can't see anybody displaying any real leadership in this department. What I can see is that people are sitting back and passing the buck and, you know, letting the Department of Mines and Energy call the shots here and I'm not sure that they've necessarily got the best interests of our environment at heart. I'd like to believe that they have. I don't want to come across as one of those people who sort of, you know, disses on mining when I know that the products of mining are really important to our economy etc and you know I drive a car I want to drive a car on roads that are built from the products of mining I have no no qualms in admitting there's a certain amount of hypocrisy there but the global market for salt is it's pretty limited at the moment I'm not sure that we're really talking about a product that our economy is going to fall apart without but if, like you're saying, if the salt plains are kind of helping the mangroves in some of these ways and, and helping the animals around and they can, well, be, they a, used to. That can certainly be a positive the, thing, yeah, they then you don't, certainly it doesn't the... have to affect that, but maybe it's something else as well. There's other things. Like they say, South Australia, I think South Australia, 
over the last few years is has had the driest few years on record which they think might be part of the problem there as well i don't really buy that one because mangroves are not particularly reliant on fresh water they're a tidal ecosystem so the tide comes in and the tide goes out and the, the lack of rainfall hasn't really affected the salinity of the sea freshwater runoff has very little impact on on mangrove ecosystems they're, they're a they're a true marine ecosystem mangroves are trees that grow in the sea they they have built-in salt filtration systems so you know they have the grey mangroves do two things they exclude salt so they the, there's a certain amount of salt that they stop from actually entering their system and then they use a process of reverse osmosis to extrude salt so if you look at the back of a mangrove leaf um, you'll see crystallised salt all over the back of the leaves of, of mangroves, particularly if it's if there hasn't been a lot of rain for a while. And um, that salt is being directly pumped out through the back of the mangrove leaves. And then they have um, the odd sacrificial leaf. So when you walk through a mangrove forest, you see that most of the, the trees are covered in beautiful green leaves. But every so often, on each branch there'll be a few bright yellow bright orange leaves and they're there's sort of sacrificial leaves where the, the the plant has determined that that leaf is compromised and so it will pump salt into that leaf and and it turns orange because the chlorophyll in the leaf dies and that leaf will have a much higher concentration of salt than the leaves around it and when it falls off it takes all that salt with it so if mangroves are human they would make sure all leaves were treated equally in that extent. <laughs> I doubt that. God, where have you been? That's not what humans do. Yeah, it seems um, to be sometimes. Isn't that smart that like, yeah. a, a tree can do that? <laughs> and I mean, having having said that, the, the, the mangroves are part of an estuary. So obviously there are freshwater creeks and rivers that drain into the mangroves. So, for example, the Dry Creek, the Little Para, um, the Gawla River, all of those rivers drain into the mangroves and in fact a lot of people wouldn't be aware of this but on the other side of Barker Inlet um, so you know we think about the Port River where does the Port River come from the Torrens originally the Port River is essentially the mouth of the Torrens but the Torrens so the Torrens now flows out to sea at West Beach right but that's man-made that channel it never used to flow out to sea there it used to divert to the right because that whole peninsula was covered in barrier dunes you still see them to some extent at Tennyson mm. where the Tennyson there's a great app actually if you go to the Tennyson dunes you can I'm on it so is Chris Daniels everyone who's got something to say about anything along the coast is on that app you can download the app and you can get you know me banging on about bugs or Chris banging on about is Nick Crouch on there Nick Crouch organised it, for yeah, sure. Yeah, he's coming on the show to talk about coastal ecology. He's great, Nick. Stay tuned, wildlife he's, fans. He's been in it for a while, Nick. Um, yeah, he's a lovely, lovely guy. So, yeah, so if you if you want to sort of get a bit of a picture of what the dune systems along the coast used to look like, head to the Tennyson Dunes and, and um, download that app. Because the rest of the dunes are houses now. Pretty much, yeah. Mm. And that yeah. Place, you're talking about the water that comes in, bringing you all the sediment and things. Now, because the dunes are gone... We have to pump all the sediment back up so that we um, yeah, well, have that's beaches. another. Yeah, that's oh, what, another. From, from Largs gets pumped back out to Glenelg and, and well, that's and a, that, that's yeah. a, another very controversial 
coastal management issue, I guess. It is. We'll save well, that it's for not, Nick It's not on. really controversial because we wouldn't have beaches to swim on if they didn't do it, Chris. So it's easy. Well, I guess that's the thing. I mean, it, 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 it has been going on for a very long time, but I guess the processes that we've used have changed a bit at the moment they're using trucks and that's actually my local beach where you know we, we can barely access the beach because there's massive trucks belting up and down the beach day and night carving oh, so the the pipe doesn't go all the way up there then. no they're not using the pipe at the moment it's, it's oh, they're they? trucking sand yeah the pipe's very controversial Dinged too out. yeah look I, I guess um i mean i remember back in the again the early 90s um, when they built the breakwaters at West Beach, and that was pretty controversial. And um, what it was predicted then that this is the situation we'd be in, you know, if they went ahead and did that, and they went ahead and did it, and now this is the situation we're in. And I'm not sure that there's a way around it. Mm. I hate to say it, because I, you know, I, I shudder to think of all the all the the biota in that sand, which is, you know. I want to talk a little bit before we finish up uh, because you can edit this. Yeah, yeah. So I want to yeah. talk a little bit about what about mangroves. We touched on this earlier that, you know, they're trees that live in the sea in the intertidal zone. And they have some pretty unique adaptations that allow them to live where they live. Um, so nearly all mangroves have some form of aerial root system. Some of them have... Uh, buttress roots that come down from branches and go down into the mud. In fact, the next most common species from the grey mangrove is a mangrove called Rhizophora stylosa, the red mangrove, and that has those very typical buttress roots that come down from the sort of the the lower branches and the sides of the trunk and down into the mud. Um, the grey mangrove has sort of different root system called pneumatophores and they're the um, dead man's fingers you mentioned dead man's fingers yeah and they 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 also have roots under the ground was you listening yeah. oh yeah i woke <laughs> up for that bit. Yeah. don't start listening now <laughs> um yeah so then pneumatophores so they, they have like a radial root system right under the mud so pretty shallow rooted mangroves which means that if there is a you know if, if there is any real sort of storms along the coast they can actually you know, get very easily sort of suffer from boat wash or um, big wave action. They can they can really suffer from that. But um, so they have like a sort of a radial root system, and then from these radial roots that extend out from the trunk, um, they have these pneumatophores, which are the dead man's fingers that sort of stick up like snorkels almost. Or breathing um, tubes. That well, they are. They're 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 quite spongy. They have a sort of a hard core in the center, and then right in the center of that, they have this sort of Erenchyma sort of tissue, and the tissue around the outside of the pneumatophore is also quite spongy, sort of erenchyma. And then they have tiny little holes. They're probably lenticels or type type holes around the edges of the roots. And as they get wet, they swell up and seal off the roots. So when the mangrove roots are underwater, they're not taking on water. They're they're sort of they've got these little spongy sort of. Um, spongy sort of guard cells that seal up and stop them from taking on water um, and the mangroves while they're inundated those roots have got um, oxygen stored in them and as they produce carbon dioxide 
um, because the tree roots respire, obviously. So we got this idea that trees don't need oxygen, but they, they do. They, they respire just like we do, but they use their roots. Um, so as they use up the oxygen, they store the carbon dioxide. So sometimes if it's really early morning and the tide's just gone out, and all of those little cells in the roots have started to dry out and the guard cells have opened, they release carbon dioxide. So it can actually be quite, you can feel quite dizzy really early in the morning when they're all releasing carbon dioxide out of their mm-hmm. pneumatophores. Wow. Um, yeah, it's kind of, a lot of people are not aware of that, but that's a thing. And um, so then... Do they make a fart sound when they do it? No, they don't. It doesn't <laughs> smell or anything. You can't smell it or hear it. But, um, Stephen, Sorry. <laughs> But so that allows them to not drown as well when they're, you know, when they're inundated at high tide. And, um, and we talked a little bit about the salt, you know, the fact that they're like little salt pumps um, and they use this sort of reverse osmosis to, to filter salt and discharge it through the back of their leaves. Um, and in the case of the grey mangroves, they also exclude some salt some mangroves just extrude salt and some mangroves just exclude salt, but the, the grey mangrove, the Avicinia marina, does both. The only species of mangrove in South Australia. I think you said that. The only species yeah. of mangrove in South Australia, tree. Um, so, so, yeah, they're quite remarkable trees. And if you, if you really get in under the mangroves, you start seeing there's a whole heap of birds that you probably don't really associate with a marine environment. You know, so like whistlers and robins and blue wrens and thornbills and um, kingfishers. I guess you'd probably do associate kingfishers, but rainbow bee eaters, um, elegant parrots, all kinds of amazing bush birds that, you know, grey shrike thrushes, singing honey eaters, um, all these amazing birds that live under the canopy of the mangroves themselves and in the samphire as well. And then you've got all of your seabirds, you know, all of your terns and your egrets and your ibis and your black swans. People don't think of black swans, I guess, as a marine bird, but they're, you know, they're, they're pretty abundant in marine intertidal estuaries. And because, of course, it's an estuary, so it does have that connection with freshwater, you've got all these fish that, you know, like congolies and things like that. that skippers. There used to be mudskippers in Barker Inlet, but I, I'm not sure that there are any more. They're certainly listed, you know, back in the day. I read these really early naturalist reports that you can find in Daryl Cranville's book, oh, yeah. The Pre-Existing Vegetation of Great the Outer Plains. Book. So in that book, he, he's got some excerpts that he's published from these very early field nat reports um, where they did this walk out to the end of... Lefevre Peninsula, which is the start of Barker Inlet. And um, there's this one account where they talk about the marine biodiversity out there being, you know, like something from a, a coral reef and, you know, just being this amazing biodiversity. And I read that and just went, wow. We've got more diversity than the Messed Great Barrier Reef. that up, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> That's what yeah, Carl Charter said Carl Charter said, yeah, yeah. Well, he was absolutely amazed. He would know. We're all a bit envious of his photos and stuff, aren't we? Is Mm, it just me? Yeah, yeah, and his 3D video. I know. Yeah, he's amazing. Do we know, like, like we've talked about all this dieback of these mangroves? Do we know if we can reverse that and how long that might take? (gasps) I look. I I think it. God, it makes me want to cry thinking about it. Actually. So the, the part of the mangrove trail that's most significantly affected 
is the landward edge of the mangroves and it's really easy to look at those plants and go oh they're really small they're not very old they're young plants blah 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 but actually mangroves because they're they grow in such hypersaline areas and because the back of the forest the landward edge of the forest is subject to much saltier soils and water than the other end of the forest because that gets flushed out a lot whereas the the landward edge of the forest doesn't get as flushed okay so the bit away from the ocean saltier saltier yeah yeah like yeah. like you know up to 10 times as salty as seawater we we recorded it as mm. um so those mangrove trees you, you can think of them as bonsai mangroves really so if you look at not the size of the trees but the habit the shape and the structure you get these tiny little trees and when you look at them you could take a photo of them and people wouldn't know if that was a giant tree Hmm. or if it was a little tree because the whole tree is bonsai the leaves are smaller the pneumatophores are smaller and when you look at the habit of the tree the branches do that serpentine thing where they bend down and touch the mud Mm. and then come up again and bend down like you see in the western miles when you go out to Wyala. and i remember bob langey who was this amazing rangelands ecologist that was one of our lecturers at Roseworthy. And he spent a lot of time at Middleback out near Wyala. And um, he used to say that the Western Miles out there, that every time a branch serpentined, like, like bent, you know, down and touched the ground and then came back up and touched the ground again, that that length of time it took to do that was 150 years mm. so there were trees out there that did that you know three or four times and you could sort of go okay that tree's maybe 450 years old it's that thing of you know size doesn't necessarily determine age with trees you've got you've got to look at the habit so you get these old old trees that are tiny little bonsai so you're saying we mangroves. should dig them up flog them off with bonsai <laughs> before off, yeah. the salt fields kill them um, you go Miyagi <laughs> so I, I'm guessing that you know to even really begin to see any kind of recovery in those mangroves you'd be looking at 20 years I suppose but there's other issues at play so one of the issues at play is that the ground out there is subsiding because we remove so much water out of the aquifer that um, if you combine sea level rise and land subsidence, there's a, a net loss of, of you know, height above sea level. So um, what that means is that it's not as simple as just regrowing the mangroves. There's a, a lot of that part of, the, part of the mangrove trail that has died is, um, you know, m- where mangroves are sort of, maintaining a very tenuous grip on spots that have lost all the sediment and there's like big ponding sort of areas so you would actually need to address that lack of sediment in order to regrow them they won't grow in a pond they need to actually have that intertidal you know they need to be exposed at low tide and inundated at high tide Um, and the exposure is probably more important than the inundation they can they can deal with being inundated every so often but they need to be exposed pretty regularly in order to grow so um you can't just chuck a whole heap of propagules off the boardwalk and think that they're going to grow there's no shortage of propagules floating around out there um but there is a shortage of recruitment so i I suspect that the only way to regenerate them i've always had this idea and they're actually using it now for some of those seagrass trials that they're they're doing to recover seagrasses. Um, 
I've always had this idea that the way to regenerate the mangroves would be to actually grow them off-site in hessian, you know, great big hessian bag-type tubes, you know, where you sit them in a... Because you know, they'll grow in fresh water. You only need to water them with salt water once and then they'll recycle that salt. You don't need to water them with salt water every time because they just get too salty. The salt just, you know, the water evaporates and leaves the salt and so you get this increasing salt load. You don't want that. So you only need to water them with salt water once, maybe once in a blue moon. And then the rest of the time you can water them with fresh water as long as they're growing in a closed system. So you could grow them in hessian bags, I think, and then bring those hessian bags maybe into some of those areas where the mangroves have died. And I would, you know, there's talk about do we dig up those dead mangroves, but I I would actually leave them. I think they're really important stabilisers at the moment. I wouldn't... I wouldn't try and dig them up. But, yeah, so I think that's one way of doing it. We used to grow mangroves quite a bit um, out in the, out at, you know, out in the trail. We, we had a few different displays where we had mangroves growing. So they're not hard to grow. Um, and I think, you know, if there's anything positive that might come out of this, it'll be that there'll be some amazing citizen science that will come out of it with, you know, people, people I think who do respond to the call for action will, um, will engage in growing mangroves and looking at, you know, recovering that area. But in, in the meantime, um, we need the state government to act and, you know, and that means we need the state government to, um, a, remove the driving head of brine because at the moment the salt fields are still, you know, filled with brine and that means that because they're gravity-fed, that brine's still, you know, driving down through the salt field. Um, we, you know, the, the working party that we've sort of formed, a group of NGOs have sort of got together all with a vested interest in, you know, what's going on and... That's what I meant when I said it's like, like getting the band back together. <laughs> a lot of these people I remember from 25 years ago and, you know, they're still still fighting that fight. God love them. Um, but we're, we're calling for the state government to acquire those site leases immediately, so the saltfield site leases immediately, and then to decommission the ponds um, in an ecologically sensitive manner. And that's one thing that, you know, something positive that could come of it is that the mangroves have long suffered from having nowhere to go they're retreating landward but they've got nowhere to retreat to so if the government did um decommission the ponds and acquire those leases then potentially the mangroves might have somewhere to retreat to now that's a a very big you know pipe dream but um and then we want the government to restore the ecosystem and that's you know there's a burden of there's a monetary burden involved in that that um you know, might be a bit, might be a bit terrifying for everyone concerned. But I think the alternative is the loss of the fishery and the loss of the habitat and the loss of the tourism, um, and the loss of anything to protect that coastline. I think they they far outweigh, you know, any kind of monetary cost. I don't, I don't think we can not spend that money, because if if we can take those actions, then we may be able to prevent further ecocide and that's really what's happening at the moment it's it's ecocide and the the loss of habitat and biodiversity yeah I, I, I and I think the other thing is that 
there's decades and decades and decades of really progressive decision making and really progressive actions that have been taken to protect and preserve that place and i think if we if we take some really definitive action now and come down hard now and really say no no this is not okay then i i think we reinforce the intentions of our state you know and our identity as a state that protects and preserves ecologically culturally sensitive places and you know and i think that's what we what we want from our governments don't we we don't just want governments that are focused on money we want a bit of this and a bit of that and we want we want to inspire we want to inspire future generations to think that there is reason to hope for you know um nature-based industries and and scientific activity in the future I was inspired by that. You were inspired by that. Mm. I mean, you were living in another country, but you came yeah. here inspired by that, you know, I, so... I brought all the stuff over here that's destroyed it. <laughs> ah, the English. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I mean, what a shame that in some respects when, like, some of the stuff you just said was... A lot of it was hitting at, you know, um, putting a value to that, but a monetary value to that. And that's a real shame nowadays that we have to put a monetary value to it in respects of fishing um, and all these things. We have to put a monetary value to it for people to look at doing something about it. And, and that's a massive shame. The, the, the mangroves is a, it's a worldwide problem. The problem is like it's, it's all down to a lot of education now because I think for years, ever since I can remember, ever since I was a baby, a young kid, you know, it was all rainforest. We need rainforest. We need to save the rainforest. You know, this is just as important and no mm. one's ever really spoken about it. No. This is honestly the first time that I've known that there's a, a mangrove problem. And then when you look into well, why do we need mangroves then and you look into that, it's potentially a huge problem because it does just as much good, if not more, than a rainforest in some you know, yeah. some situations. But it's just sometimes a shame that we... And we do have to do what we have to say. But if you lose that, you're going to lose $100 million worth of fish mm. out there and stuff like that. I just think, well, it, yeah. it's got bugger all to do with yeah. it. Just save the bloody mangroves. Anthropocentrism. But it's it's yeah. just that, you know, we, we've had it... Yeah, we've had it thrown at us for years about rainforests. And I think, um, yeah, maybe mangroves should have been in there that whole time as well. And it's we good. need to yeah. shout as loud as we can now. Yeah. There is a mangrove day. Do you know is what it? that is? No, I well, that's all right. I'll tell you then. Yeah. <laughs> um, the International Day for the Conservation of the Mangrove Ecosystem, 26th of July every year. Is that right? Mm. Since 2015. So let's, let's see if we can make a change and get some news at St Kilda by the 26th well, of July. Yeah. And, August, you know, yeah. I, I, I've just got that thing. I'm feeling, I'm feeling really... Chris is crying. Chris crying. I am, crying. yeah, I am. Because I just... Love, I think it's because of what I Chris. said. I do such good speeches. Oh, yeah. And because I, <laughs> I just think, when is it going to change, you know? Like, when I've had this idea in my heart since I was a little kid, ever since I've read the words, I am the Lorax, I speak for the trees, I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongues. And I'm asking you, sir, at the top of my lungs... And, and at the end of that book, with the one word, unless, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. We all so need to catch, act. says the Wansler. 
it's a seed, it's a truffula seed and truffula trees are what all people need, you know, and I feel like that about mangroves. I feel like, I just feel like they get the short end of the stick and they're getting the short end of the stick and for so long, this is something I, you know, that speaking for mangroves is something that has been in my past. I didn't really think I would find myself in this place because so much great things have happened. The dolphin sanctuary, the bird sanctuary, you know, I felt like it was all in good hands and people finally got it, that all my work and all the work of all those people who worked in that place really, you know, people thought we were nuts when we started talking about mangroves and, you know, they were just seen as boggy, mozzie-ridden swamps. And when we started, you know, go, oh, mozzies are food for birds and these things are feed for fish and blah, 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 blah. And people were so worked up about that. And it really seemed like we were making a difference. And this is just, this just, dare I say it, just shits on all of that effort. I feel like it just shits well, yeah. on what, all what of that What difference effort. have you made, though? You like know, you've probably made a huge amount of difference. Oh, well, like, not if not if every not if our government. I don't mean everybody, but I, I do mean our government. Stephen Marshall, I'm talking to you. If you sit back and do nothing about this, let this be on your head. Let this be on your head, and let the the future of this ecosystem that will not be there for our children and our children's children um let that be on your head what what a what a horrific legacy to leave mm. the state of south australia what a horrific mm. legacy and i i have more faith than that in my leaders i want to have more faith than that in my leaders i don't want you stephen marshall to be a onceler don't be a onceler be a lorax speak for the trees because they can't speak for themselves and you have been elected not to just speak for industry not to just speak for mining companies there's enough people speaking for them we're all speaking for them we we spend our money on their products you know but somebody has to speak for the trees so so man up and speak for the trees and if you really want to put people first put the environment first we can still have all these things, but yeah. we, shouldn't, we shouldn't have to ask. Because you can't eat your money, you know? So we're saying make edible money. <laughs> yes, that's that what you, you got that's, out you always, you always get, you always get the, the real points. You're such a positive person. It's just, you're amazing, aren't you? Chocolate coins. I think we've solved it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. Move on to the next thing. Uh, Great. Brilliant. Right. And Chris will be back next week. <laughs> yeah. And the week after. Uh, I'll be back next week talking about um, what shall I talk uh, about? Edible bugs. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we've still got to do oh, You want to do that, we don't do. you? Yeah, yeah. We do. Yeah, we do. Um, well, all right. So end. that, that uh, link that you said people can, uh, if they want to uh, sign... Yep. We'll put that. Uh, we'll get Save that. St Kilda Mangroves. Yeah, we'll put that on our uh, website. And that's on Facebook. If you go to the Facebook pages, there's a Twitter thing and there's a, what's the other one? Instagram. And um, and the other thing they're asking people to do is, you know, post videos and photos and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, and there's also a change.org petition. And we need tonnes of signatures for that. Like we really need a 
we need a tidal wave of signatures um, of people to sign that and really put some pressure on our, not just our Premier, but anyone in Parliament and the opposition. We need pressure on all of them. If you're in government and you're listening to this, then get on it, you know, speak to your people because it's, I think our lives depend on it. Well said, Chris. Sounds like it. Thank you, Chris. Um, yeah. The end. All right. Yeah, let's have a clap. Whoa. Oh, <laughs> James started it. Clap. <laughs> clap. Oh, that's because he to... wants to go. He's like, hurry up, we're running late. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, guys. Well, um, thank you again, Chris. And guys, thank you for listening. Bye.